If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to uh, the book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter uh, 12 this morning. It's on page, uh, we're actually going to be reading from, uh, from verse, starting at verse 19 on page 234 in your pew Bible in front of you. And I want you to have something in mind as we uh, read this passage of Scripture. I'm going to take a small part of uh, the entire chapter, uh, chapter 12, and just look at these last few verses where, where Samuel gets to the meat of this sermon that he's delivering. And I want to look at that uh, briefly, but I want you to have something in mind. I was thinking this week, Amy and I were talking about gifts uh, for Tiger and various things that he needs. And the reality is he has so many toys that he should not need any more toys for the rest of his life. He has lots of toys. We said, what about books? Yeah, books would be a good thing for Tiger. Uh, and Amy pulls out a, a, a big Tupperware box. And she says, I need to see what books we have. And she has, this Tupperware box weighs about 50 pounds, and it's full of books. Uh, and, and I got to thinking about classic books and various things that children read. And, and the one that stuck in my mind was the book, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, it's, it's a perennial favorite, written in 1963. Uh, interestingly, the history of that book is when it, was, when it first came out, librarians hated it. And they banned it because it only has 338 words, and it's a book intended for, uh, for like uh, seven and eight-year-olds. And they said, a book of 338 words, it's not enough. And so they banned it for a few years uh, from libraries until more and more parents found it and were reading it. And so li- librarians had to give in and get it into their libraries. But you know this story. It's an incredible story about a boy named Max. Uh, and he puts on this wolf-type costume. And when he puts on this costume, he is transformed into this wild creature. And what do wild creatures do when they're inside? They run wild. They, they destroy things, and that's what Max did. And Max did this to the point where he was sent to his room without supper. And when he gets into his room, what happens? He is transformed and transported away from his home to the land of the wild things. And very quickly, Max becomes the king of the wild things. Uh, as I reflected on this story and thought about how great this story is, it's one we can identify, especially as uh, if, if you've ever been around little boys, because they are wild, right? They're uncontrollable. They can't be tamed. They have this energy that just has to get out. And, and you reflect on this idea of, of this wildness. And, and I think the scriptures actually say that uh, we see it in little boys and little children, but the reality is that our hearts are just like that. That our hearts are wild and not able to be tamed. We run away from God and we destroy things by our sin. And, and Samuel here in this passage, he points the, the God's people and says, this is what your heart is like. And then the question is, what do our hearts really need? If, if this is what our heart is like, if we're like Max in the story of where the wild things are, then, then what do our hearts really need? Because Israel's heart is wild. Our hearts are wild. We're going to look at the last seven verses here, starting at verse 19. And this is the punchy part of the sermon. This is where things get really, uh, really important for the people of Israel. So read along with me. 1 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 19. I'll read through verse 25. Hear God's good and kind word to you today. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God. That we may not die, 
For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you once again for giving us this word. And we pray that by it, you would reveal to us our hearts. But also, even greater, that you would reveal to us your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today I want you to see just two things. We only have two points. I want you to see Israel's great sin. Israel's great sin. And that's uh, starting in verse 19. And then secondly, starting in verse 23, we're going to see God's great grace. So first of all, Israel's great sin. I, I don't want to read all of this chapter to you, but I do want to highlight to you what Samuel is doing in this passage. So turn uh, very quickly to, to verse 1. Um, at the end of chapter 11, Samuel has gathered the people together at Mizpah, and he's renewing the kingdom. Uh, and Saul is once again put in place as the new king of Israel. They have rejected Samuel as their judge, and they have Saul now as the king. Samuel is going to remain as the prophet for Israel, but he's no longer going to be their king figure, and so he's stepping aside. So what do kings do when they step aside? What do presidents do when they leave office? What do politicians always do? Well, they give speeches, and this is exactly what Samuel does. He gives a speech, his farewell address, as he's stepping down as the judge or ruler over Israel. And what is the content of that address? Well, he begins in verses 1 through 5 by simply asking the people about what kind of leader he has been. Has he had integrity? He says, I've never stolen anything from you. I've never taken a bribe. I've never done anything wrong. Tell me, have I? And they respond and they say, no, you've never done anything wrong. You have been a good leader and a good ruler. Now that is to Israel's shame because he has been a fantastic ruler. He has over and over and over pointed them back to Yahweh, their God. And what do they do in turn? They reject him. So all Samuel's doing is saying, look, God has given me to you to provide for you, to rule over you, to judge you, and to do good for you. And I've done those things as you have attested, and yet you want something different than me. You think you know better than, than I do or God does. For what's good for you. And so he ends there in verse 5 by pointing them, remembering, having them remember all that he has done for them. And then starting in verse 6, he wants them to remember their history. 
And so he goes on and he tells them and reminds them about their history, starting way back in Egypt. Well, you know what happened in Egypt. The people were enslaved there. And what happened in Exodus chapter 1? The people cry out to God. God hears them, and by his grace, what does he do? He saves them by the hands of Moses and Aaron. So get the picture here. Here's a theme that we're going to see. The people are oppressed. They cry out to God, and God delivers them. And he does it by the servant Moses and Aaron. And then he brings up a second time. He says, look, I brought you into this wonderful land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Um, And then what did you do? You sinned against me by worshiping other gods. We're told two other gods they worship, the Baals and the Ashereths. The word Baal just means husband, and the word Ashereth means wife. They worshiped husband gods and, and wife gods. Now, these were idols. They weren't uh, husbands weren't worshiping their wives, obviously, and wives weren't worshiping their husbands. That, that's not what they're doing, but they were worshiping basically fertility gods. They were practicing all sorts of different, um, uh, of different sins in their worship. They were doing despicable things, and they ran after these other gods. And so God said, in discipline, I'm going to teach you that you shouldn't do these things. And so he delivers them to other people. And what do they do? They cry out once again and they say, we have sinned against God. And God hears their repentance and he gives them a deliverer. He gives them judges over and over and over through the book of Judges. He saves his people. And then the third thing, uh, we've been studying this the last few weeks. Uh, The people decide that they want a king. Um, They're tired of Samuel. They're tired of the judges. Uh, Nahash, this bad guy, is once again, uh, another bully is there, and he's bullying the people. And they say, look, we know what's best for us. We want a king. And instead of turning to God and saying, we have sinned and we need deliverance, they say, God, we can do this on our own, so we will choose a king for ourselves. So Samuel wants them to remember their history. God has been their Redeemer over and over and over. He has loved them and cared for them, and they have rejected Him. The second thing that Samuel wants to do in these verses is he wants them to recognize Yahweh's power. Look in verse 16. After Samuel reminds them of their history, in verse 16 he says this, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? This would have been around April and May in Israel. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Uh, This is, again, April and May, and I've never been to Israel. I've never uh, seen it, but I do know this, that it never, ever, ever, ever rains in April or May in Israel. Uh, There's long periods of time where it just does not rain. It's basically a desert, and the wheat is in bloom. It's the time for the wheat harvest, and you harvest when it's not going to rain. And so the people that they're ready for the harvest And Samuel says, you want to see what God's power is like. You need to recognize God's power, what he can do. So Samuel prays, and rain comes when no rain ever comes. Um, And so Samuel is pointing out to them. He's not saying, look how powerful I am. 
But look at the nature of the God that you have rejected. You have sinned against him. You don't want him as your king. But this is what he can do. This is what this God is like. He can make it rain when it's not supposed to rain, when it never rains. He can do these things because he's mighty and powerful. Samuel wants them to recognize the power of Yahweh because he wants them to see what their sin deserves. And so in verse 19, all of the people, they recognize what they've done. And they say, okay, Samuel, you prayed for the thunderstorm to come and were terrified. Now pray for your servants to the Lord. Not that the rain stops, but pray that we may not die. For we have added all of our sins, added to all of our sins this evil of asking for a king. Finally, Israel understands that through the years, as they've worshipped other gods, if they've done all these despicable things, that they have been rejecting Yahweh as their king from the very beginning. They've been following other gods. Like a wife that runs after a mistress or a lover, they've re- she re- rejected their husband, and that's what Israel has been doing. So they sin by wanting a human king as well. They've added on to their other sins of following other gods. Now, what we tend to do is we tend to say that sin in our modern era is not a big deal. We don't oftentimes use this word sin. We don't like the word sin. It has such negative connotations. And and the idea of sin makes us feel bad about ourselves. Um, Modern people like to talk about God as a loving God. But here's the thing. If you do not have a God who is both holy and just... And loving, you miss the greatness of his love. God is a God of power. God is a God of righteousness, of holiness, and of justice. And all through the scriptures, not just the Old Testament, because some of you are thinking, yeah, this is all the the Old Testament stuff. If you get into the New Testament, Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. In Acts chapter 5, God, Yahweh, strikes two people dead for bringing, uh, uh, for lying about their tithe and offering. He strikes them dead. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, we're told that God is a consuming fire. That's all New Testament, okay? God is the same in the Old and the New Testament. He is a God of holiness and of justice, and he does judge sin. And, but we say, oh, we only want to talk about God as love. God, God loves us. And, and yes, God is love. But he's also holy and just. And again, if you miss the holiness of God, then his love really doesn't mean anything. Because if we're lovable, then God didn't have to do anything to love us. If inside of us we are just naturally good and it's easy to love us, then it doesn't really take any sacrifice to love. But here's the good thing, and we're about to see this, God's great grace. We are not lovable. Israel is a despicable nation, and God still loves them. Here's what we're told here, that you and I are max in where the wild things are. We are the uncontrollable children. Hearts that are bent on doing what we want to do who shake our fist at God and say, we want it our way. You can't tell us what to do. That's who we are. So the question is, how does God 
respond to our sinfulness. Well, here it is, the meat of the passage in verse uh, 22, the meat of the passage. And this is where Samuel really gets to the point where he talks about God's great grace. So look with me very quickly. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Uh, Right before this, he says this in verse 20. I love this. The people say, pray for us or we'll die. They're, They're trembling in fear. And in verse 20, what does Samuel say? He says, do not be afraid. Well, good, okay. Don't be afraid. Good. I was afraid, but now I'm not. And then he follows up by saying this in verse 20. Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. So get what he's saying. Don't be afraid. You have sinned against the Lord and deserve his punishment. Wait a second. Wait. Where's the good news here? Don't be afraid. I have sinned. Well, what do we make of this? See, Samuel isn't saying their sin isn't bad. He's saying, no, your sin is that bad. It doesn't do us any good to lie to ourselves about how evil we are. Can you imagine going to a doctor, having your body riddled with cancer, and him looking at you go, eh, it's not that bad. Go home, and let's see how it works out over a few weeks, right? What if he just straight up lies to you and says, no, your cancer isn't that bad? Or you don't have cancer. It does you no good for a doctor to lie to you about your health. Then why do we want spiritual doctors to look at us and say, no, you're pretty good. When the scriptures tell us over and over and over, no, our hearts are that evil. And we have done all this evil. And we do deserve the wrath of God. It does us no good to not get the proper diagnosis of our heart. And so Samuel gives it. He says, don't be afraid. But you have done all of these things and deserve the wrath of God. So where is the good news? Well, here's the thing. The good news is not about Israel. The good news is all about the character and nature of God. And that's what we see in verse 22. Um, He says uh, at least three things here, Samuel says in verse 22. First of all, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He says, Israel, this is why you should not be afraid. Yahweh will not forsake you. You've done all of these evil things. He will not leave you. You have cheated on God, your husband. He will not forsake you. You have run after the Baals and the Ashereths, and yet he still loves you. God is stubbornly committed to his people. He will not forsake the ones on whom he has set his love. He is stubborn about it, and that is good news for us. We don't deserve his love, and yet he constantly pursues us. He constantly comes after us. He constantly loves us in spite of our sin. And here's the great thing. Nothing will ever persuade Yahweh not to love his people. Nothing. So Samuel says, first of all, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Good news. Secondly, he says, he tells us why. He says, for, he doesn't say, notice this, he doesn't say, God will not forsake his people because you're so great, he just has to be with you. He doesn't say, oh man, you're really great athletes, Israel. 
man, you can dunk a basketball. I'm going to really appreciate you. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, Israel, you're really tall and that's why I love you. Because they're not. They're very short, right? Okay. He doesn't tell the Israelites that he loves them because of anything in them. He says, I love you for my name's sake. It's another way of saying I love you because I love you. I love you because I have determined to love you. You see, it's not about Israel. It's not about what they do for God. It's about what God does for them. He loves them for his name's sake. It's the worst thing in the world for a husband to say to his wife, I will love you as long as you do this and this and this and this and this. And for a wife to say, I will love you as long as you do this and this and this and this. When we make our marriage vows, we say, I will love you in spite of you being unlovable. Because the truth is, we are very unlovable. That's why divorce is so heartbreaking. That's why it's so hard. Because somewhere along the line, someone said, I'm going to love you until you don't make me happy anymore. The good news about God is he says, I love you even when you do nothing to make me happy. Then thirdly, and this is really amazing, he says, it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Get this. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The Lord is pleased to do it. He isn't begrudgingly like, oh, those Israelites, look at them again. Well, they're silly and stupid, and I guess, okay, I'll go do it. That's not his attitude toward us. He isn't begrudgingly loving us. It pleases him to do it. Get this, he cherishes his people. He cherishes his people. And Guess what? He has to make us his people. It pleased the Lord to make you a people. Because naturally, given to ourselves, we don't do that. We aren't just all running to God saying, we want you, we want you. In fact, the Bible says we're running away from God saying, we can do it on our own. And God pursues us and makes us his people. And then the third thing here is that he makes us his people. Now, this is a corporate us, a plural. But I want you to think about this, that he makes you individually his people. And he knows you. Nothing is hidden from God's eyes. He knows what's in your hearts. He knows your secret thoughts that no one else knows. He knows that you wish that I would just wrap up this sermon right now and you're ready to not hear from me anymore. He knows your secret thoughts. He knows the things that you love that aren't the things of God. He knows the secret places you go that you think no one else knows. He, he knows the things that you look at on the internet when you're not supposed to be there looking at them. And if you're his, he loves you. He makes you his child. So here's the thing. Um, In this, Samuel points the people to God. He says, do not be afraid. Because God is here to love you and he gives you fullness. In verse 21 he says, don't turn aside after empty things. Don't run after these other gods. Only run to the God that is fullness and satisfaction 
himself. Stay with him. Uh, when Amy and I lived in Ridgeland, Mississippi, before we, we moved here, there was a Sonic about a block away from us, and we went to this Sonic more than I care to admit. Um, and one of our favorite things is mozzarella cheese sticks, okay? Uh, we love mozzarella cheese sticks. And, and I know, Kenny, we shouldn't eat these things, but we do from time to time. And we would go to this Sonic, and we would order mozzarella cheese sticks. Uh, and I would get them, and I'd bring them back home, and we'd tear open the bag, and we'd go to town on them. And, and at this one in particular, they had a unique ability to fry their cheese sticks so that all of the cheese leaked out, and all you had was simply the little shell of cheese stick left. And so you'd, take, you'd be ready for the full cheese effect of the fried mozzarella cheese stick, and you'd bite into it, and it was empty. And you look, and you go, what is this? And you just were disgusted. I mean, we still ate the fried part. But, but no, the cheese wasn't there. It wasn't full. And we were disappointed. It wasn't satisfying. Here, here's the great thing that we learn uh, from what Samuel tells us. With God, it's all cheese. There's no emptiness. It's complete, full satisfaction with God. Why? Because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he runs after us when we don't deserve it. Now, let me end. We have the Lord's Supper to come uh, in a few minutes. Uh, let me tell you the end of the story of uh, Max and the, the, where the wild things are. Max decides to leave the land of the wild things where he is the king and to go home. Why, why would Max, who is the king of the wild things, who has everything that he wants, why would he decide to go home? His wild heart in the book is overcome by wild grace. Because in his room, he, remember, he was sent to bed without a hot meal. What was waiting for him in his room? Supper. His mom loved him and overcame his wildness with grace. You and I need that grace. And here's the thing. We have a supper. <laughs> now, it's not hot. I recognize this. But it's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done to make us his own. His body was broken. Your body should have been and his body was. Your blood should have been spilt and his blood was. Why? Because it's the only way for you to live righteously in goodness before God. The proof of his love is that he took his son who had done nothing wrong and he willingly went to the cross and on the cross took the punishment, the judgment that you and I deserve. And because of that, we have the grace of God. We've seen our great sin. We've seen God's great grace. And in the supper, we have a small little taste and a reminder of that grace. Now, at the end of this story, Samuel says, if or at the end of this, this passage, Samuel says, if you've heard the grace of God, there is still something for you to do, not to earn God's favor. favor. You see, you've already got that if you're his child. Be faithful to him. Stop running after other gods. The call of the gospel is to repent and believe, come to Christ and rest, and then be faithful to him because you have his love. Be overwhelmed by his grace. Show that he loves you. 
by simply loving him back. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to be with us as we take this meal. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We thank you for your great grace. We pray that as you meet with us in this supper, that we would see that grace more and more as we taste and touch and feel the reality of the gospel, as we have this sermon preached to us in visible and uh, tangible terms. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that we would understand that grace more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.